Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is not a diving podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving Podcast. Today on the show, we have Nicole Cacciavellano. She is an extremely important person in underground music in the United States. She runs a venue called The Black Box in Denver, Colorado, and her history in putting on parties and as a promoter, has been extremely important in the development of bass music and dubstep in particular in the US. So she was one of the very, very first people to bring over DJs from the UK going back to 2005. And her, along with a few other promoters who we do mention during the conversation, were really instrumental in laying the groundwork for what just became a huge thing with obviously the North American interpretation of the sound too. So it's great to have her on. I first met her many years ago when I was playing at one of her parties at a venue called Cervantes in Denver. And I played the Black Box on my recent trip to the US. And it's a great venue, I have to say. I would highly recommend it to anyone in the area. So... Yeah, we get into all sorts of things in the conversation from the minutiae of uh, running a venue, dealing with the pandemic, um, picking a sound system, all the way through to the early years of a dubstep sound in the early 2000s, and just the progression of her life as a promoter and building the scene over there. So yeah, really, really important person to talk to. I've called this um, episode Dubstep Wars, so I'm going to be uh, putting the episodes in which we discuss early dubstep into a sort of category of their own going forward. I'm not sure how often we'll do them, but I'll just like preface them with that little title. 
Um, there's definitely a few more on my list I want to get done. There's actually loads. So um, yeah, we'll see see how we get with that. Anyway, thanks to everyone for your comments for my monologue episode last week. Um, I hope I didn't enrage any journalists. I did caveat my uh, my comments by saying that there are many great journalists out there, music journalists. So um, if you were offended, then um, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I do stand by what I said, though, on a general level about the music press. Anyway, um, leave us a review or a rating. Not if you're an enraged journalist, but um, if you're a <laughs> if you're a satisfied customer, leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. Really does help the show. Join us in the Discord if you have anything to say. That does apply to enraged journalists. There is a link in the show notes, or you can go to hotflushrecordings.com slash discord to get there. And there is a Spotify playlist, as you may know by now, but um, it's a good way of following this show because it includes much of the music that we talk about during the conversation that we have each week. So, um, yeah, without further delay, here is Nicole Cacciavellano. Nicole Cacciavellano, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, I'm glad I got that pronunciation right. Um, second time, <laughs> second time round. So, um, yeah, nice to have you on. We first met um, many years ago, but were reacquainted last month when you booked me at your venue, Black Box in Denver. So, thanks for booking me. Um, <laughs> that was, that, <laughs> Always that was a pleasure. Nice so, um, yeah, I just wanted to jump in with a question, which was, I wanted to. Get your opinion on, on how how at all, if any, if anything, that the music that people want to hear has changed since the reopening after the pandemic. I've, I've actually just asked that question really badly. Like, uh, how have people changed in, in their kind of musical expectations and sort of desires from a kind of club clubbing experience since reopening? Yeah, so I think, you know, in Denver, it's been a little bit different. You know, the Denver audience has always been extremely educated when it comes to music, which uh, which has been great. Um, during the pandemic with the Black Box, we were able to do seated events. And, um, you know, during that time, it was almost like it didn't necessarily even really matter who was playing or what they were listening to because they were able to just go out and experience music again in a venue, right? And so since then, since we've been reopened fully, um, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been pretty, pretty, pretty intense, honestly. Um, people are just coming out in, in, in drones. And I, and I do think that in general, I guess, the biggest thing would be is that the scene and the audience has kind of changed. I, I feel like with the pandemic, a lot of the older demographic of people have kind of realized what it's like to stay home and enjoy that a little bit more to where <laughs> yeah. the younger kids are still wanting to come out or maybe turn 21 over the pandemic, you know, and they're ready to come um, and experience things for the first time. So what I'm finding is that, you know, a lot of the old school, you know, submission just turned 15. So a lot of the older school or original sounds or original artists, you know, are the kids have, it's like, they've never heard that music before. It's like, we almost have to re-educate them on what these sounds are and who these artists are. Um, especially since a lot of them haven't been back since the pandemic due to not being vaccinated or the travel bans or whatever. So 
I think uh, American music has maybe taken over a little bit more than um, than the international, which always in Denver had been kind of the priority. Sorry, which the the international had been the priority other way, other way around? Yeah, the international. You know, for for submission, right. we've always kind of just booked the international guys coming over. You know, and uh, supported dubstep from from the beginning days. You know, so can I just go back to something you said at the start of that answer, which was regarding seated events? Can you just tell me a little bit more about those? So in Colorado there was a law that said that you could operate as a restaurant. So at the black box, we were able, and they gave us limited capacities. So it started at 50 people to where we could put tables and chairs inside the venue and sell 50 tickets. And people would have to stay seated like they were in a restaurant. And what we would do is work with local food trucks who would be outside and they would have like the buzzer system so people would go and get food and then bring it back inside and eat at their table while listening to shows. And what we did was two two-hour events a day. So we would essentially just book um, one direct support for 30 minutes or 40 minutes and then a headliner. And people would purchase tickets, come in, listen to the music, eat a meal, and then they would leave. And then we would clean and sanitize and do it all over again. So we were able to survive and continue to kind of have live music by doing that, that following that approach. Uh, eventually, the capacity would increase. We could go up to 75 people and then 100 people. But it was all based on your square footage and everyone being six foot apart. So so what time was the, the first show in that? Well, we were, we were able to reopen again. We, we reopened again in July and we did... Uh, patio parties outside because at that point the law stated that we could have outdoor events with limited capacity again with six foot distancing and then we did july august uh, outside and then in september we were able to move inside to do the seated events then unfortunately due to the pandemic we got closed again in november december january february so we you know they closed us again in the winter and then we were able to reopen again with seated events in the spring. Um, and then that only lasted a little bit before we were able to do standing events, but with just limited capacities. Right. I, I actually meant uh, what time of day was the first, when you were doing those two shows a day, what time was the first one? Oh, gotcha. So the first one started around 6, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Right. And then the second was was uh, 9 or 10 to 12. And then, and then um, we had an hour in between. Okay, and um, they were popular, I guess. Oh yeah, they were popular. We sold out every single show. And who, like, what was the audience like? Was it like you know we're talking about the you know the, the slightly changing demographic over the time period of the, the pandemic? So who who were who was coming to these shows? So I, I would say probably the age group would be like twenty five to 30 five ish, maybe maybe thirty twenty five to thirty year olds. Right. And I guess that's older than, you know, the demographic you'd expect for a regular club show, right? Uh, well, well, we're 21 and up at the black box. And I would say that that's probably, you know, we don't get too many 21 year olds. Um, but I would say that that is probably our demographic. We do get, you know, to our to our main events, to where people are standing. You know, I would say that our demographic would be more like 25 to 40 plus, right. you know. I, I, would okay. I found that the older people were like, no way, we're not coming to seated events. You know, that's, <laughs> right. that's not okay. what we're doing. We're just going to stay home. And it was more the younger people who, um, 
you know, maybe they didn't, you know, they, they, did, they weren't as worried, I guess, you know, about, about anything that may have happened or they just didn't care as much and wanted to come out regardless. Yeah, I guess they wanted to get out of the house. Yeah, right? after a couple of years of being stuck inside, I think it was uh, it, <laughs> that was exactly the case. We also yeah. did find people yeah. were just purchasing tickets um, to just support us, you know, and and to like give money back into the venue and stuff, and maybe they might not even attend. Um, yeah, that's something. That's actually something that I've heard of quite like happening quite a lot in the UK. Like like selling tickets, but then getting sixty percent of people showing up. Have you had that as well? Yep, definitely. And that's even still happening. I would say, you know, as we reopened to full capacity, um, that was happening all over, all across the board at every venue. And then what's happening now is that people are coming, but they're just not purchasing pre-sales until like the day of the show. So no one knows what's going to be happening (laughs) up until the day of show when pre-sales just double and then everybody walks up. Do you know if that is also the case for for festivals right now in the US? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I know that uh, some of the festivals that I, that you know we have some of our clients working for have been have been saying the same thing is kind of happening. But I do think recently now we have zero restrictions here in Colorado, and from my understanding there will be zero restrictions in America as far as masks when traveling, everything will just be voluntary. If you want to wear a mask, you can wear a mask, but there's going to be no more requirements. Um, so now that those things have been happening, I have seen an increase in uh, festivals in ticket sales for festivals. Right. Cause I mean, like particularly for those bigger events, you've got like just crazy upfront costs and you have to have like a pretty high degree of, of pre-sales, I guess, for budgetary reasons, right? Yeah, definitely. Right. So, um, okay. So tell me about Black Box. You opened in 2016, I think I'm right in saying. And um, this is the first venue that you've run. Oh, tell, tell me in fact, is, is it the first venue that you've run yourself? It is, yes. And um, yeah, I mean, what what made you want to want to run a venue? <laughs> well, I think after about ten years of throwing events at other people's venues and losing a shitload of money, um, you realize that there's just uh, and and also I think the biggest thing is is that you know when you're at someone else's venue, you can do everything you can in your power to kind of you know set the vibe and the tone for the night, but ultimately it's not yours. Right. So, um, I think that was the biggest thing for me, you know, dubstep kind of had exploded in America and in, especially in Colorado. And as it got bigger and I started working more and more with corporations and the larger scale venues here, I just realized that most of those people were just in this because it was their job and that they weren't in it for the music. They, these talent buyers were just hired by these corporations to sell out shows and you know and that's what uh that was their that was their sole purpose who's going to be selling the most tickets whereas for me it's always been about the music and the experience and so i think you know after a couple years of that i just realized that the only way to really properly get across what you know my my viewpoint or my mission is was that i would have to do it do it myself and so 
Yeah, so I kind of knew I wanted to start a venue, and I started hiring staff for submission and training them and getting them ready for different jobs that I thought that they would be successful at. And uh, the opportunity came up to get the Black Box, which coincidentally was the first venue in Denver that let me bring in a sound system and throw a dubstep party many, many, many years ago. And um, I couldn't pass up the opportunity, so... There we are. And <laughs> right. And I mean obviously running a venue is is different to promoting a party though. So I mean how much how much of experience did you did you have of, of that side of things? And oh, how I had zero. Was it? Like, right. <laughs> I had zero experience doing that. I mean I you know, from being from building really close relationships with some venues in Colorado, you know, I kind of you know, saw what it, what it took and, and had worked with them and stuff and, and basically had been running those events at their venues for, for many years. But I really had no idea what I was getting into, to be honest. Um, I had a huge learning curve and, you know, I, I had never worked as a bartender or on the bar side of things. So learning that entire side of the industry was, was, uh, was something that was really intense. And, you know, the rest of it wasn't as difficult because it was just like throwing events, except we could just do whatever, you know, we wanted. I could properly soundproof the place, you know, do, do kind of everything I would do if I had a spot, get all that done. The events would run themselves, but learning the venue, learning the taxes and the business side and all the licenses and the rules and, and insurance and everything <sighs> like that was, uh, was definitely a learning curve for sure. So yeah, how much of the business is the bar? Because I mean, just when you mentioned it now, it's got to be quite a big part of it, I guess. Oh yeah, and that, and that was what I was saying about the money. You know, a lot of times when you throw events at, at a venue that's not yours, you don't get any bar cut, you just get tickets. And so most of the time the tickets are paying for the artists or whatever production or anything that you're putting into the event, right? So there's very minimal amount left over for you to actually make, right? And so the bar is everything. The bar is what runs the venue essentially, right? Like the door still, you know, goes to the tickets. When, when I create settlements for booking artists, I put all of my, you know, all the expenses in a, in a spreadsheet and I set ticket prices based on how many tickets I'll sell. And I hope to get that so that we at least break even at the door for artists. Um, but yeah, the bar is the lifeline. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, from a business sense, you're basically selling drinks, right? Yep. So, okay. So, um, so tell me like, what were the major challenges then of, of, of getting going? Like, what was the venue like when you took it over and what did you have to do to it? And you know, what were the, what were the biggest things? Gosh, I mean, the biggest challenge was more on a personal side because unfortunately, as I was opening the venue, my mom was dying of cancer. And so I was flying back and forth every two weeks from Philadelphia to Colorado. And it was just, this crazy juxtaposition of the best moment of my life, accomplishing my dreams and the worst moment of my life, you know? And so I was constantly shifting mindsets because I didn't have time. When I was in with my mom in Philly, I could focus on that. When I was in Colorado, I could focus on the venue. The venue itself, the condition was terrible. Their floors were rotted out. We had major construction projects to do. Um, major remodels to do the the guy who was in it before us ended up being out two weeks late which pushed us two weeks we had two weeks to get done projects prior to opening our first for our first show luckily i had an amazing team of people and contractors who we literally just worked nonstop 
um, to get some of these projects done. And it was just a, a list, a priority list, safety first, what needs to get fixed, what do we need to do in order to open? And then, you know, even, even after our first opening night on Friday, I realized that the stage wasn't cut back enough because we had flipped the entire room in the main room. The black box is two rooms. And in the main room, the stage used to, was on the side. And so with our sound system, it would have left us maybe 150 spaces for people, right? So we had to flip the room around and rebuild a stage in a different location and cut down the, the stage. And I remember after the first night, just seeing how crowded it was. Cause it, you know, it sold out right away. And after seeing the flow of people after that first night, I called my contractors and I was like, we need to cut the stage back even more before we open tonight, you know? And they were there doing it. And like, that's literally how we survived probably for the first few months. You know, we just did projects on downtime. They would come in after the shows were over they would work all night. They would work on any days that you know we had off, and just kind of continue chipping away at, at whatever we could do. You know. I mean, that sounds extremely intense. It was intense. It was definitely intense. I mean, to be honest, I don't even really remember. You know, obviously going through a lot of trauma. My mom ended up passing away a month in, so we opened November, and my mom passed away December one month later, and so wow. I don't even really remember the first year. It, it's like, it's slowly coming back to me now as I've kind of gotten things under control, you know, and, and dealt with some of that trauma, I guess. But like the first year, it was just nonstop, you know? And, and I think it was probably better for me anyway because of losing my mom, having a project like the Black Box to focus on. I just, I was in all out yeah. work, work mode, you know? And so... It was very intense. <laughs> so uh, what was the system you put in? I've got to ask that question. Yeah. So um, a friend of mine custom built sound systems. And so he custom built some subs for us. At the time it was called, uh, he, his company is called the Bass Couch Company. And so we have subs that uh, basically go down to negative 19. And it just essentially sounds like, a helicopter is a, is above you. If, uh, <laughs> so it, it gets pretty low, which obviously is what we wanted for, for bass music. Um, our tops are Tenoy IQ. They are, um, very, there was only like, I think they said maybe like 20, some 20 of those made that were actually floating around in America. Um, and then our mids, we actually just changed out our mids to, to function one. So function two fifteens. Um, that just makes the mid range so much more clear at this point. Uh, so yeah, so we kind of pieced together a sound system. Um, but it is, it's amazing. We love it. We, we have the best sound system in Colorado right now, so we can be more proud. Yeah. It sounded great. Uh, the other week when I was playing on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So what was the first night? So the first night we brought out Mala and, uh, we did Mala, Mala played like a three hour set. Um, and that, that was kind of our opening. We also did Kananique with more sounds, um, and, and worked with a company out here. My best friend Maggie runs a company called Recon Drum and Bass. Um, and out here in Colorado, her and I are, are basically the longest standing promoters as far as dubstep and drum and bass go. So, uh, we did a lot of collabs in the beginning days of those with those sounds. 
And so, like, how has the kind of music policy, like the bookings policy, kind of developed over over time? Then is it? I mean, obviously, it's very heavy on on bass music, but like, do you do all the bookings yourself, or is um? Tell yeah. me how it works. So basically, I handle all the bookings. Um, we we I have done a a bass music weekly called Electronic Tuesdays. It's just turned eleven, so we moved Electronic Tuesdays over. Um, on Wednesdays, we just recently started booking house and techno, and I hired a talent buyer for that for the first time, which has been great. Um, and so that's that just started this month in April. Uh, so we'll see we'll see how that goes. Um, and then Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, you know, again we we do a lot of bass music, but ultimately the way that the simplest way to break it down is there's submission shows, which are primarily bass music. Um, and then there's black box shows, which can be any genre. Um, we don't necessarily, you know, to me, good music is good music. Me, you know, people who produce music, good production sounds really great on a great sound system, right? So to me, I'm not too picky about what, um, what the genre is or what the sound. Obviously, we're kind of, you know, we kind of fit into that bass music category just because of the history of submission and such. But we do have reggae, hip hop techno house music we do have drum and bass and dubstep and halftime uh, we just kind of have we, we kind of run the full gamut now you know yeah so how does the venue like fit into like the wider scene like the wider kind of like nightlife scene in in denver like where do you guys kind of sit gotcha so we are known as the underground music venue um we definitely are the tastemakers. We're the ones that bring up the artists for their first plays, uh, the venue that can get the larger artists for their underplays due to the fact that our sound system is so good. Um, and just the vibe, you know, we, we don't have a lot of flashy lights or movers or things like that. You know, we're very dark, um, focused on local art. Our lounge is always free. So we have a very strong local community. Um, one of the biggest things when I opened was that, you know, there's so many local crews pushing sounds that they love. And I was one of those and I still am one of those with submission. And I was able to accomplish a dream and, and get the venue. And a huge part of that was I wanted to make sure that all the local crews who have been pushing their sounds also had a home. And so the lounge is kind of dedicated to them and they do do free nights where they get paid bar percentages which usually are, work out pretty well because the main room sells out a lot and there's the flow of the trickle over from the people buying drinks into the lounge plus the people that they bring. So, um, yeah, we have a pretty strong local following and, uh, yeah, I mean, we continuously every year win the best, the best club in Denver, the best sound system. So I would say that, you know, we're the, we're the venue that, uh, people, people like to come to, you know, and, and the artists. Right. And, and I think a lot of the larger scale venues, they look at what we're doing and they pick the artists that, you know, that do well. And, and that's kind of like how they see what is new and what's hot coming up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I want to talk about submission, which is the dubstep night that you've been running since 2005, but I think it might be useful for people who are not familiar with Denver, just to talk a little bit about how it's changed over that period, because um, Denver was like the first big city to get involved with the uh, legalization of cannabis, and that changed things a fair bit. 
just at a very general level in the city. I think I'm right in saying. Yep, definitely. So, I mean, in general, you know, Submission Colorado, I guess, has just changed since I've lived here um, with the legalization of marijuana meant an influx of people moving to the city. And so that that is what we're constantly dealing with. I mean, the, the thing that's happening right now is that people are moving here for the weed, for the mountains, for the weather and for the black box, you know. And so we it's it's a crazy community that's happening right now um, and a crazy influx of people. I mean, it's just it just doesn't stop. I think our yeah. How many? How many? Like, what's been the population growth in however however long it's been? When when was it? When was it first legalized? So weed was legalized. That's a good question. I mean, was it ever illegal? <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> um, let's see. It's a while though, right? It's coming. It's like my seven or eight years or something. Yeah, two thousand and twelve oh. is when recreational right. marijuana was legalized in Colorado. Okay. And so, yeah, so in, um, yeah, geez, has it been 10 years already? That's crazy, right? Time is just such a, such a funny concept sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, the population growth in Colorado since 2012, I mean, geez, I would say, I mean, it's, it's insane. I mean, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even know millions of people. I mean, like, Colorado is just constantly under construction right now because they're rebuilding all our roads. They're rebuilding apartments everywhere, knocking down houses to build apartments. It's just, there's so many people that are just coming. It is insane. But it's Denver alone was saying something about adding like hundreds of thousands of residents in in and of itself, just over a small group of time. Um, So, I mean, let's see a million new residents between in the past 10 years to make it well I mean, what's the population 5.8 million right yeah so that's uh, up 20 percent at least which is crazy and and then how is that how has that affected the like the music scene and the kind of club scene oh, it's exploded scene? i mean so it, it, ironically around the same time in about 2010 to 12 that's when dubstep. So Colorado really did not have a music scene. You know, it was very small when I first moved here and dubstep and submission changed, changed everything, you know, come 2010 to 2012. That's when we were selling out thousands of thousand person shows. I think I was doing four to five shows a week, selling out that many tickets, the only dubstep promoter. Slowly from that, other promoters started, you know, kind of coming up and, and pushing different sounds uh, of dubstep, rhythm, or just like a little bit more of the American side or a little bit more of the bro step aggressive side. Um, and then realistically, what happened was the corporation started picking up, picking it up and having me book the talent for their events. And that was for Red Rocks and, you know, First Bank Center, like large scale festivals, large scale uh, convention centers for New Year's Eve, you know, tens of thousands of people. And um, as dubstep and bass music ex- was exploding, then comes legalized, the legalization of marijuana. And so then the influx of people just started and it has not stopped since. And so basically what's right now is that there are so many people that there are, and, and there's so many shows in one night, 
in Denver, there's probably five shows going on on a weekend that are all bass music related or all electronic music related that there would be some type of crossover. Um, so it is insane out here right now. You know, there's a lot of shows that happen all the time. There's a lot of people that attend all of those shows and everybody kind of just finds their, their little niche. You know, it's like with the black box, because our capacity is so small, we do have a very strong following of people who come out and they would prefer to come to the black box, you know, for, for every night of the week, if possible. Um, in the corporate world, you still have, you know, because now the thing is, right, is that dubstep and electronic music in America is on Target commercials. It's on commercials. It is very mainstream. It's not, it is, it is so much different than it used to be. There's no negative stigma anymore, you know? And so now that it's so mainstream, kids that are in high school are, and middle school are DJing, you know, and are learning about electronic music and listening to electronic music. And a lot of the venues that are the corporate venues are 16 and up. So a lot of the younger kids attend those types of events. At the Black Box, we made it 21 and up because, one, we are small capacity, and it would be very helpful to us if everyone in the building was drinking something from the bar. Two, 16-year-olds, it's just a little bit too much of a liability. While we do have our license to hold those events, it, I was a high school teacher, you know, so it is, uh, it was a, it was a bit different, difficult for pill for me to swallow. I figured we'd leave them to, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. To the, the corporation. <laughs> so you just, you just said that there was a, um, like a stigma around dubstep. What was, what was that? Yeah. Just not even dubstep. It, like when I moved to Colorado, there was a rave act in place and basically there could, right. there, there, there was like. You know, because there was here, you know, the larger scale promoter who did more of the rave scene, you know, the candy bracelets and the pacifiers and the drugs and the stuff like that. Right. So there was there was that happening and Colorado was not about it. And uh, there was just like a really negative stigma when it came to electronic music in general, because at the time. People didn't care what the genre was, you know, it was all electronic, it was all techno music, you know what I mean, or whatever, electronic music to them, that, that's, you know, before, before it kind of... It's just, it's just drugs, basically. Yes, think, yes, people, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> okay, um, super interesting that it's continuing to grow, uh, that kind of clip that you just described. So... Just to just to clarify a little bit, um, you mentioned at the very top that there's a you can perceive there to be a sort of difference in sound between the um, like the local, or maybe not the local, just like the sort of American take on bass music, maybe or dubstep in particular, compared to UK. And I'm saying UK. I, I mean, I was going to say European, but it really is kind of UK, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty much. But how would you how do you characterize that that musical difference? So I would just say it's a bit more aggressive. Uh, I think that's the easiest way. What ended up happening, obviously, was, you know, people like Excision and the Datsics and uh, Liquid Strangers, etc., who are Canadian and American, you know, they, they were also listening to the more UK-style dubstep, but then started producing their own, and it kind of got more and more aggressive. They came from more metal backgrounds, so there was a lot more metal influence, um, and, you know, it, it was more 
chainsaw and robots, you know, then. (laughs) (laughs) And so that sound became really, really popular. I mean, it is it it blew up. I mean, that's what people coin as bro step these days from bro step. Then came rhythm after bro step. I shouldn't say from rhythm to me seemed to be younger kids who even were from the UK but didn't feel like people like Jake's or Caspa or, you know, the, the more wobbly sound, right. That they kind of, they kind of took the more wobbly sound and made it a little bit more aggressive. And, um, that translated really well to America because bro step was already a thing here. And so then, then there really became like three sub genres of dubstep. There was like the OG UK, you know, UK dubstep, then there was rhythm, which was also really from a lot of the UK guys. But in America, a lot of the younger kids started producing what we consider what what is called rhythm, and also a lot of the younger kids started producing what they what they saw as bro step. I do believe a lot of that happened because you know how quickly that's those sounds monetized. You know, like how quickly. Mm-hmm. They, those artists went from playing a small venue to like large corporate concerts, you know, and, and it was just more, yeah, it was just, it was just so, so much more of like a mainstream sound that the proper OG dubstep was kind of more underground, you know, it kind of stayed in, in, in with submission to this day. We are really the only promoter in Colorado that still pushes that sound, you know, mostly every other promoter, every other promoter is a rhythm or, or bro step. Okay, so I think um, this is a good, as good a time as any to, to kind of go back to how this stuff all started. So I've explored previously on the show a little bit about how the London scene got going and the kind of route out of Garage and, and all that stuff and forward and, and all that. But how did you first come across it? I guess it's a good place to start. Okay, well... I grew up in Philly, and at the time in Philly, drum and bass was huge. It was kind of always the battle between Diesel Boy and Andy C, right? So um, I I had come across some music by Luke Envoy, and I was like... Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah, right? Do you remember him? Like, what's even happened to him? But I had come across some music from Luke Envoy and I was like, what the hell is this? You know, like this is not drum and bass, you know what I mean? Like, what is this? And so I started digging in and doing, doing my own little research and uh, you know, cause garage was never really a thing here in America. Right. So it was like, um, you, you know, we kind of like skipped all of those history lessons. So as I started digging into, to finding these sounds, I started finding more garage, more, you know, more dubstep, more, you know, more, just more songs, more music along that, uh, that BPM. Right. And so I started really getting into it at that same time as when I was moving to Colorado, like, like I, I had moved to Colorado a couple years after that, I should say. And so when I got to Colorado, there was, so, really, sorry, 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 sorry. What, what year are we in? So 2005 is when I moved to Colorado. I think got probably it. those songs were like, I started really finding, dubstep, you know, in garage, probably in like 2003, 2004, just kind of exploring it, figuring out what exactly it was, you know, looking into the history of it, you know, because at that time I had no idea who any of those artists were. Right. So it was all like a new thing, a new thing for me. And so. And sorry, if I could just jump in, 
were you like DJing or were you just kind of exploring it as a music fan? Yeah. So I was just a music fan. So I just was, uh, you know, I, I can DJ, but I never really chose to follow that uh, path. Um, I was just a music fan and had found, you know, had found some songs and just kind of like the rabbit hole opened, you know what I mean? I just kind of like started, started figuring it all out. And then when I had moved to Colorado, I realized that there really wasn't a scene, you know, there was a couple dubstep or drum and bass promoters and there was the rave scene and that was about it. You know, there's some breaks and stuff like that. But as far as bass music went, it was really non-existent. Um, so just kind of, you know, when I did move to Colorado, I, I had Google searched Colorado drum and bass, found this forum. From that forum, I met people. When I came out here, I hung out with those people, went to their shows and loved it and moved here, started hanging out with those people, showed them dubstep. They showed me some dubstep. Some of them were DJs. My friend Maggie that I was mentioning before who runs Recon would allow us, and she was even playing some dubstep back then, we'd open up the drum and bass shows with some dubstep uh, locals, some of our friends, you know, just to kind of see what the reaction would be. And people mostly left the dance floor (laughs) every single time. (laughs) And so, except for like our small group of people who were like, yeah, this is so sick, you know? And so eventually then I started kind of doing the same thing at the reggae shows, putting in a little bit more just to see if that demographic of people would, would be interested. So eventually it just uh, became a thing to where we, we were like, all right, we're going to just do it. We're going to, we're going to start throwing dubstep events and see what happens. Okay, so, so hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We've, we're jumping ahead a little bit. Yep. So, so at what point did you start putting on just parties generally? Uh, 2005 was the, my first year that I got here. I threw my first event in Colorado. And what, what actually brought you to Colorado in the first place? Why did, why did you move? I don't know. I mean, it, honestly, I was teaching in Philadelphia and it was really intense. Um, I taught in a really bad part of the city and I wanted to go on vacation and in for our winter break. And for some reason, Colorado was, you know, I know it sounds weird, but I think I was just meant to be here. You know, Colorado was the place. I had never been here before. I convinced one of my coworkers to come and that's, wow, really? that's what I did. And I came out and that's when I Google searched, you know, Colorado drum and bass and <laughs> came out for my winter break and hung out in the, in the scene. And I was just like, okay, I'm, I think I'm going to move here, you know? And then by spring break, I came back out and interviewed for jobs and I was offered a position. Um, I actually was offered a job. They didn't have a job for me yet because what I, what I taught specifically wasn't really out here in Colorado yet as things were a little bit uh, behind when it came into education initiatives. But I got offered a job I got off, and they were like, move here, we'll find a school for you by the time school starts, but you'll definitely have a paycheck. So I was like, all right. Went back to Philly, told my teacher or told my principal that uh, I would be leaving after this year. And I basically packed my stuff and flew out here with whatever I could fit. And uh, yeah, so it was it it was just um, as weird as it sounds. You know, I think I was just meant to be out here. You know, this this was my path. Right. So. Yeah, sometimes that's just how it how it pans out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. follow the path. So, um, yeah, you you mentioned you mentioned before that kind of wasn't much of a scene when you got there. So, so was was starting events really just a case of just like you know 
filling the gap you know filling, you wanted to go to parties there aren't any parties so you just put one on is it was it that kind of thing i mean pretty much it was that the music that i wanted to hear on sound systems didn't exist and it didn't really exist in america at that point very much you know so it was it was a matter of finding being able to find like-minded individuals who are also interested in the sound and just doing it so that we all had a place to go and they could DJ and we could hang out and listen to the music we liked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was pretty similar actually in London at that time. There really wasn't much at all going on in 2005. Pop, you know, forward once a month and the other, you know, like the occasional other thing, but really not much at all. So it's, I think like, I think if, if those of us who were going to forwards around them when, and it was actually like, there was a period in 2005 when Ford was just dead and they, they were talking about, you know, showing it. So I think if, if we'd known that there were like things like popping up, like different parts of the world, it would, it would certainly would have blown my mind anyway. <laughs> but, um, tell, tell me about like the first, the first few nights then, like, how did it like, you know, how, did, how long did it take to catch on? I'm guessing it took a little while to catch on, but like, yeah, tell me a few of the, like the early, the early experiences. Yeah. So I would say the first proper show where we brought out a headliner, we brought out Nick Argon, who at the time ran Argon Records and had put yeah, out wow, Maddie G, 50,000 watts, right? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. that's going back so long. Yeah, wow. totally. Okay, sorry, right. sorry no. guys. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, that was our first headliner. And um, it was at this small dive bar called Cosmos, which was at the time the spot for for what we wanted, you know. And uh, sorry, could I just 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 clarify that one? So when you said it was the spot, obviously it wasn't the dubstep spot because there wasn't one. But were they what were they doing drum and bass and stuff, or like what was what was going on there? Yep. So they they were doing some drum and bass and reggae. So it, it was like. Back then, there wasn't, you know, Colorado, there wasn't really venues, right? So there was like um, corporate venues, which obviously they're not going to let us come in and, and do a dubstep night. And then there was like bars. And so I spent most of that first, you know, the first few months leading up to that event going to any place I could imagine seeing music and like bringing in a sound system, asking them like, hey, so do you, what do you think about... Uh, do you rent your space? Could we throw an event here? Could we bring our own sound system? And as soon as I would say, can we bring our own sound system? They would basically be like, nope, we have these very, very, uh, we have a lovely sound system. We have that one sub over there in the corner and these two JBL monitors. And what could you possibly need more sound for, you know? So Cosmos was the, was the spot where they didn't care what we did, you know? So the owner, it was just ratchet, you know, and it, they stayed open all night, you know, like they closed, I think maybe one hour, just, you know, a day. It was just like, Oh wow. So like a proper, like semi 24 hour kind of place. How does that, how did that work with licensing? Um, so when you have a cabaret and a liquor license, you're, you know, you can stay open as long as you're not selling alcohol between certain hours. So, uh, yeah, of course, right. yeah yep. so, so it, it worked, you know, we did, we, we, you know, we did only stay open for the hours that you could sell alcohol. We had some warehouses that we would do all night things at, you know, you know, a difference just so that way we kind of had our own little separation, but but yeah, at the time, Cosmos was really the only spot that was allowing you to actually do whatever you wanted, you know, bring in a sound What's system, custody? maybe a hundred, <laughs> not yeah, even, yeah, okay. you know, it was tiny, <laughs> yeah. it was tiny. 
And, you know, it was split into two rooms, two sides, because it was like just an old school wood paneled bar, you know, and it had like this divider in it. So their dance floor maybe could fit 25 people. And then the room went all the way back on one side. So maybe the room where the sound system and the dance floor was, was 50 to 75 people with some booths. And then there was the other side, which was the bar side and had some pool tables and it was a little bit bigger, but you know, it was more people just like standing over there. Right. So, but yeah, it was pretty tiny. It was the only spot that was allowing us to do what we wanted though. So we really didn't have many options at the time. Um, especially since everybody was kind of turning, turning us down. (laughs) So, but yeah, so we brought out Nick Argon and that show sold out and, uh, it was just amazing. It, It was like, was that a surprise to you that it sold out? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I had no idea what to expect, honestly. At that time, it was myself, my boyfriend at the time, my partner Mike and his girlfriend at the time. And I was teaching. So, um, you know, it was just kind of like a hobby. It was like, ah, well, you know, relatively compared to what shows cost these days and artists back then, that wasn't really much money, you know. So, like, it was worth it. It was worth the risk to see what would happen. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it just caught on really quickly. A lot of the people who were residents for recon ended up becoming residents of submission and like had switched from drum and bass over to dubstep. So we had a lot of the following of the dub, the, of the drum and bass crowd. We had a lot of following of the reggae crowd. So, you know, prior to this event is when I had been kind of inserting dubstep into different people's events just to kind of see what, what, uh, what they thought. Right. So it kind of worked and people came out and I think they just wanted to support something new, you know, and, uh, they liked it. And so I, I will say that eventually, you know, I, I, I would start to notice, you know, as, as we got into bigger rooms and stuff that it was like a three show turnaround. People made it, it come out to three events by the third event, they were either sold on dubstep or they never wanted to come back. <laughs> and like, it was just not, right. not for them, you know? So Okay, so um, just uh, just just going back a little bit, like obviously, like having a having a big first night is is great, but then it can be something to like live up to. So you know, obviously, you progress to to bigger rooms eventually, but like, what was the progression there? Like, was was it difficult to to make that step? Like, how did it um develop? Yeah. So what ended up happening was um, after the first couple events where we just had like American American artists. We met Miro from Shorefire and uh, we, cause he was at that time doing events in San Francisco and I had been, I had been flying to San Francisco to go to dubstep events because at the time they had started, you know, there was like a Caspin Rusco event out there. I went to Amala and Sergeant Pokes event out there. I went to, um, you know, Joe nice was doing his thing. So I had started meeting up with them and was just like, okay, well, how can we bring this to Denver? And so there was a thing called Quarter Forums, which was just kind of a message board that myself, Miro, Drew, who ran Smog in LA, and Siraj, who ran Gritzy in um, Houston, and Dave Q, who ran Dub War in New York, we would just all talk and be like, okay, who are we bringing out? You know, like let's, if we can all team up and we can all offer this much money on this date, then we will be able to, um, you know, kind of start reaching out to some of these UK guys to see if they want to come. Sorry, if I could just jump in, um, that list of promoters that you just gave, I mean, those people really are, um, responsible 
for the uh, development of dubstep. I mean, as you as well, certainly. But that list of people, um, Miro at Surefire in San Francisco, Drew from Smog in LA, Dave Q, Dubwar in New York, and Sue Arch in Houston. Um, yeah, just um, super, super, super legendary and important people. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Um, you were saying. Oh, no, that's okay. Yeah, and I was just saying that what ended up happening was is that we um, started kind of communicating in this message board and coming up with the ideas of what artists we wanted to bring. And then Miro would reach out to the artists and we would start tours. And at that time, we were all only doing weekends. So the artists would come and they would end up staying at our house for a week. Um, so we really got to know them from the beginning. Um, I think the first time I brought Bega, he maybe was 16 or 17 years old. Um, <laughs> so, where, so where are we now? We, we're in sort of like 2006 sort of time, right? Yeah, so we're about 2006, yeah. 2007 at this point. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so then from that point, you know, and the only reason I brought that up, you know, I know with the progression of venues is what you asked, but that was just like a huge pinnacle moment for us because there was other people in America who wanted to do the same thing. Right. And so, um, something that we wouldn't have been able to probably do ourselves, you know, cause it would have been just way too much money and nobody knew. I mean, the first time I brought Hatch and Benga was to a venue called Benders, which is now the black box. And I think maybe we sold 70 tickets. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, <clears throat> at that point there was not a huge scene. Like, we went from Cosmos um, to a couple other random bars who would eventually let us bring in, bring in, you know, some small sound, one of those being Benders, uh, which is now the Black Box. We, as, as the sound grew, we were able to go to a venue called Vinyl. They had a basement where they had drum and bass. A friend of ours was doing drum and bass as a weekly and he wanted to make it a bot. He wanted to just do it twice a month. So asked us if we would come in and do the other two weekend, the other two weekends a month. And that was great. From there, beta opened, which was uh, affiliated with Beatport and they had a lounge. And so we moved over to that venue when they opened. And that was in about 2008. And we, at this time, we're selling out the Beatport Lounge every single show. Um, so, sorry, how how often were you doing parties? So this was every week at this point. So we were, wow. yeah, okay. we, we, this was every Friday at Beatport. So let's sorry, let's let's just um, we're, we're jumping ahead uh, <laughs> quite a lot now. So, when did you go to weekly? And um, I'm presuming it wasn't weekly from the start. No, we started as a monthly. Um, yeah, monthly. We, we stayed monthly until we moved to the vinyl basement when we were doing two parties a month at that time. Right. And were they, were they both with international guests? Uh, they were, yeah, it was international and American at that point. Still, it was very American based with Babylon System, Noah D, Anti-Serum, artists like that. Um, right. Um, yeah. Miss, uh, God, what? Yeah. Dean. Yeah. So we just, we just basically, you know, it was still very American then. And it was during those, that time when we met Miro, you know, and, and, uh, and, and started quarter forums. And so we were able to, as we left that basement of vinyl, right. we moved into beta. But let me, let me, sorry, let, let yeah. me, let me just ask you, um, uh, 
American DJs, but largely playing British music at that stage? Uh, they were pretty much playing British music, but those the artists that I was just mentioning, like Nick Argon, Parson, um, Junior, OSC, Babylon System, Anti-Serum, they were all making their own music as well. So sure. it was kind of like a combination of of kind of both, uh, both in their sense. Yeah, I just, I, just want, I just want to make sure that we get the point at which sort of American dubstep became a kind of thing in of itself but like so let's just put a pin in that and yeah. enough and, and, uh, when we get to it but yeah so um right two shows a month of, of vinyl yeah and then when did you get to weekly yeah so basically like in 2007 we were just a monthly in 2008 we were doing the two shows a week but then beta also opened so we kind of were transitioning from from one venue to the next and kind of had the two shows, but then also started the Friday. Right. And so then by 2009, by the end of 2008 is when the international artists started coming out. So that, that was when we were mostly at beta. Um, and so some of the first people were like Hatcha, Benga, um, Headhunter, the others, you know, were, were just DZ, um, which I think was, he's from Canada. So by 2009, we were just in beta, just at beta. And in the early, the early years of 2009. And what ended up happening was beta, we were selling out the lounge as soon as we started, you know, our, since we were the only promoters of that sound, people followed us wherever we went. Right. So we started selling out the Beatport lounge is what it was called. And they moved us. How to, many tickets is that? Uh, I would say that was probably about 150 to 200 tickets. Yeah. Um, and so at that point, then they moved us to the main floor, but they moved us to the main floor on a Wednesday, and which obviously isn't ideal. But they just they just really didn't believe in us, I guess. You know, like <laughs> or or what? So we did start doing, you know, some Wednesdays, and at that point, it was like. Um, Rezo, Roscoe, Amalke, Starkey, Mala, 16-Bit, Broken Note, Cuts, N-Type, Scream and Marianne Hobbs, Casper. So towards the end of 2009, because we didn't like the Wednesdays at Beta, I, I started looking for other venues and I found a venue called Cervantes. And that's where you have played in the past. That was the first time, yeah, we met. It was a, it was a show there. That was a good venue. Yep, and that was another venue that was a bit of a free for all and you know, but it was larger Cervantes big room was about a thousand to, you know, 1500 and their smaller room was about 500. So towards the end of 2009, I would probably say around September, we left beta and moved and did our first show, which I call base invasion. And it's an annual show that we do. And that was with scream, Marianne Hobbs and Casper. And that was like the largest at that up until that point, that was the largest event that had ever, you know, that we had ever done. Right. So and how many tickets was that? Uh, that we sold 1600 tickets to. And we had done Mala prior to that in May, also at, at also at um, Cervantes. And that was the first show we had done there. But it was a very eclectic lineup. It was Mala, M80 Dub Station versus Joe Nice and Speaker Bruiser. So a lot of American. Colorado had a very large like 
glitch hop population, which was a sound that I had never heard of until I moved here. Um, but so we kind of combined Mala with a lineup that was like that to kind of sell tickets and bring some attention to the sound that we liked. Right. And that was in May and that went over really well. And then we did um, a couple other things, but the biggest Cervantes event that year was that base invasion event. And it was a two day event and it went over really well. So by the end of 2009, we were basically solely at Cervantes and at that point, we were selling out 1,600 tickets every single show. So dubstep, that, that's kind of where it kind of just... Like, weekly, uh, just to clarify. It was like, not weekly. That was more... that We went back to more of a monthly situation once we moved to Cervantes. Because the room was so big, um, it was a little easier to focus on a monthly to kind of build up, build the anticipation to the next event, right? So... We moved back to a monthly, and we did that for the entire rest of 2009. So from May, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, we did one show a month at Cervantes. Every single one of those sold out, and we really were starting to pick up momentum. By 2010, things changed dramatically. By 2010, we were doing one. We started Electronic Tuesdays, so that was every single Tuesday. I started that because so many people were trying to hit me up to play these events that we were doing, but I genuinely wanted to hear them DJ first. And um, Electronic Tuesday started started and is still a DJ battle uh, for locals, and they move up the you know move up the chain. But it's a great opportunity for me to see really? people wow. play. Really, that's, wow! That's just, that's such a good idea. Yeah, and and it's like now Electronic Tuesdays they're competing for residencies, you know, because now we have our own venue and we have things that we can actually offer. Then Electronic Tuesdays they were competing for slots at these monthly parties, right? And so, um, but by 2010 things just took off. I mean, I think. From I have a list somewhere. I should look it up. But I, I, I've kept a list of all the artists I booked over the years per year. I think in 2010, we, we um, easily, we were doing every single Tuesday with headliners, plus two or three events a month outside of that. Yeah, and it's, it's it's crazy growth, isn't it? I wanna I wanna just um go back a little bit though. Obviously, like. Uh, Scream, Marianne Hobbs and, and Casper that's obviously a key show and like that was a kind of like you know a statement right I guess right? but um, like were there like along the way from you know the, the kind of sort of 500 cap and smaller rooms that you were doing were, were there similar key shows that got you to the next stage or was it more of a kind of gradual building I would say there were a couple key shows it was definitely a gradual build but the thing is, is that we went from, you know, I'm trying to think of like what, what some key shows would have been like in 2008, I, I think like, uh, we brought Hatcha in July of 2008. We brought distance in September. I, I would say it was a gradual build up until about the summer of 2008. And then we started bringing the internationals consistently. So from the beginning until mid you know, until summer, it was it was a lot of locals and a lot of just Americans, you know, who were pushing the sound. And then that is what kind of helped us just have some consistency and kind of allow a place for people to come and see what it is that we were doing. 
And then once we were, you know, once we were a little bit more confident in that, and then we met Miro and all the quarter forums guys, we really just started pushing out the internationals. And that is when I think things really changed because then, then it was like, okay, now we're going to take this serious. Now there's more money involved, you know, now we're bringing out people who have a lot to do with the history of why it is we're even here today. And I would say that that, you know, probably mid 2008 is when it kind of became, you know, it, it got a little bit more serious, you know, and we started really, really bringing people. And at that point, people were coming because there was no dubstep anywhere in the Midwest other than Colorado. People would travel from all over New Mexico, Kansas, Arizona, you know, like no, no matter where everybody was traveling to be in the, you know, to be at the shows when, once we started bringing the internationals. Right. So that was a huge shift for us. So it went from just this local scene we were cultivating to then the local scene wasn't just local to Colorado. It was local to the entire Midwest because we were the city doing dubstep that was closest to them, you know? So our scene grew. So we were able to kind of start affording to bring out, more and more people, right? And so that's kind of what started happening. And the vibes back then were unmatched. Like, they're still some of my favorite parties, you know? Like, there's something to be said for being a part of something that no one else is, you know, before... Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and and witnessing the kind of development of something in that way, just watching it grow is just an amazing feeling. Exactly. It's it's honestly my favorite, the, the, my favorite part about the whole entire, all 15 years, you know? So, so I would say like towards the end of 2008 is when we realized that it wasn't just local to Colorado, we're local to our entire region in America at that point, right? Which kind of opened the door and we were able to kind of start doing bigger things. And so, you know, that's when we did, you know, like, so 2009, we were still pretty much on like a monthly schedule, but then we started Base Invasion and that was the screen, Marianne Hobbs and Casper event. Um, I would say the Mala event. We did Rusco, you know, so that year, Rusco in March, Mala in May, 16-bit, and the Scream and Marianne Hobbs were like our largest shows. That, that same year in December, I also booked Excision for the first time, and I was the first promoter in America to do that. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that going back to what I said, the, the pin I, I wanted to stick in, there's a question I want to ask you, though, before we get into that. Um with regards to music specifically so just talking about that you know the period kind of from 2005 to 2009 shall we say like quite a lot of different things happened within the kind of parameters of dubstep quite a lot of musical things happened I, I mean and there were there was some fragmentation and by 2009 the whole kind of like post dubstep thing had begun to sort of happen so how much was i mean we just talked we just talked a sort of broad level about dubstep and bass music using them as kind of like casual terms but like to what extent were like the kind of subgenres which were emerging like informing like h- how you book shows and also also with the audience like how you know how clued up was the audience about what the kind of um you know the kind of minute shifts in in music that some people get is obsessed about like what how did, how did that stuff fit in yeah so basically up until i booked excision in 2010 everything or 2009 like december of 2009 
everything was just dubstep in America. You know, when I talk about 16 bit to scream or to Marianne Hobbs to Caspa or Rusko to, to Starkey or whatever, you know, everything was just dubstep to us. There really wasn't any in America, at least there really wasn't any, um, shift in sound. you know, there wasn't any subgenres at that point. Even when we first booked excision for that first show, it was still considered dubstep, you know, Things didn't really change in America from like, to, you know, to start the subgenres until 2010, 2011. Okay. And so, and that's when a lot, that's when other cities really started picking up too. So realistically, not until about 2010, 2011, were there any other cities besides the ones I previously mentioned involved. Um, and so everything at that point was just dubstep. And then, uh, 2010 came along and everything changed. Okay, let's just go back to my my my, um, my little pin. So was Excision, like, was the advent of Excision and, and That Sick, was that a kind of key turning point in North American, obviously they're Canadian, but um, the kind of North American bass music slash dubstep sound? Were, were they the kind of bleeding edge of it in terms of like, you know, it becoming a like its own thing? Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. They, and the crazy part is, is that the first time I booked Excision in that December, uh, for December, he was playing UK dubstep. Like he wasn't, he, it wasn't bro step then. He hadn't really done his own thing yet. Right. So if you even look up and Google search Excision, Excision's like Shambhala mix, the first one he put out, it's all UK dubstep, you know? So these guys have been, have at that point, were really getting into, you know, just getting into the sound. Um, by 2010, that's kind of when things started changing with, with their sound, um, and with the sound in America, I would say, but that, that's kind of really when, you know, the more aggressive sounds started coming out and when it started changing and and it, um, it was more towards the middle of the year in 2010. And I remember having excision back in June and it was a completely different set than the first set he played. And it blew everybody's minds. At that point, no one had ever heard anything like that, you know? And some people were just like, oh, no, what is this? You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and other people were like, oh, this is, this is it. It was more dance floor. You know, it wasn't just people standing in a room bobbing their heads anymore. You know what I mean? Which never really was the case in Denver. But now it was like this more aggressive sound where people could really get into it, you know? And like, I just, I literally watched that shift change. Like I watched, I just watched, watched it all, watched it all go down. Um, the Dat, <laughs> Dat6, Excision, Flop, uh, Subvert. I'm trying to think of some of the other guys. Number nine, six. Um, Flux Pavilion. Flux Pavilion. Yeah. Like just, yeah. you know, just kind of real vasky, I would even say kind of started doing more aggressive. Sorry. Sorry if I can, if I can interrupt you, but like it definitely, um, well, there was a, a kind of crossover between like a certain element of you know, the UK sounds becoming more aggressive. And I, I, I guess probably there was kind of influence going either way there. I certainly think that, you know, some of Koki's more rowdy stuff had a big impact in, you know, probably in what, well, I mean, I, I love the tunes, but they probably didn't have the best influence on some other producers, shall we say. 
so how did you i mean how how do you see that actually how do you see the kind of like that kind of um like the cross pollination of this kind of like broy aggressive thing like how did you see that sort of um yeah happening yeah so i think like um it it kind of it kind of goes across different so like jakes and hench a lot of that transitioned into more of the rhythm scene right a lot of those kids kind of took that sound and started you know coming up with rhythm music, which was kind of like that. I would probably say the dub police Casper stuff, you know, was, was kind of like mid range between, but, but a little bit more aggressive. So the kids were kind of also getting into that. Um, the Koki, um, you know, Koki definitely, you know, his stuff was definitely a little bit harder and I can, I could see where the transition, because I mean, the funny thing is today is that Koki the younger kids are really into Koki right now, you know, like he's popping off in America right now. And it is because they're coming from the bro step, you know, so they're coming from the more bro step mainstream. That's how they got involved at, by the time they were old enough to go out to shows. Right. And so now they're finding Koki by being old enough to go to festivals or other places. And to them, that's very, that's just very similar. Right. So back then it was those sounds transitioning into people like excision and Datsik, and then that bro step wave took over that was everywhere that was everything that was the big money the big concerts the big corporations that's the sound the corporations caught on to and that's the yeah sound. i mean it, it, it really it looks sorry to interrupt you again but like watching it from afar like it was it was crazy to me just how quickly it caught on and how big it became it was just huge wasn't it yeah i mean it was my mind was blown. I mean, in 2010, I had been selling out Cervantes consistently. And then all of a sudden, the corporations, AEG, were hitting me up and taking me out to lunch every week to be like, okay, who's the next person? Who's this? What can we do now? You know, they had me booking shows for them with the excisions, with the Datsics. It blew up so quickly. I mean, 2011 and to the end of 2010 to 2011, the growth, at least in Colorado, of dubstep was was so intense because at that point now, I wasn't just doing shows at Cervantes. Now I was booking shows for the corporations. Now we were planning, they were selling out, you know, the Ogden, which is 1800, moving on to the Fillmore, which is 3000, moving to First Bank Center. You know what I mean? It was just like, then, then Red Rocks started. By the end of 2011, there was dubstep events happening at Red Rocks, which is 8,000 capacity, you know? So, uh, like, it happened. Getting into arena territory. Yeah, exactly. That's it. It was arenas. I mean, and that's, that's what was happening. I mean, now the corporations, they were solely into the harder, more aggressive sound. So they weren't really into, you know, what and, and what I did as submission was, you know, book that for them. But the openers were always the more OG style that we were interested in, right? And so we were able to kind of expose people to the sounds that we loved by utilizing those types of events and platforms that had so many people, which really helped yeah. us Let build me, our scene, you know? Let me just ask you, um, when you talk about corporations and when you also referred to um, like corporate venues a few times, can you just clarify what you mean by that? I'm, I'm guessing you mean like stuff like Live Nation, but I think I'm fairly sure that the structure of the ownership of an operation of, of live venues is a, is a 
well, I, I think some people in the UK will be surprised anyway to hear about like just how it works. So like, can you just give a, before we go on with this um, development of the dubstep stuff, which is super interesting, but like, can you just break it down? Like, like what those corporate venues kind of are and like, yeah, t- tell me how they work. So in Colorado, we have two, two basic corporations. We have Live Nation, which owns one venue here called the Fillmore, and that's a 3,000 plus capacity venue. Um, we, and then we have AEG, which owns pretty much every other venue. And they, they are like, um, so they're with the corporations, the way that it works is that they're on monthly budgets. So their jobs are just to book music and concerts, right? And so the talent buyers that work for them are paid on salary. They just book, you know, at that time, we're booking mostly just concerts, you know, that were coming, Dave Matthews Band, whatever, you know, like stuff like that. So electronic music really wasn't on their radar yet. And so when they saw me, and and so, you know, the thing is, is that it's not their money. So their jobs are to book these shows, which they have specific budgets for, you know, marketing budget for this, artist budget for this, you know, production budget, which was pretty much non-existent. Um, you know, it was just their their job was to find the new up-and-coming music, sell, get the shows sold, and if they sold out, the, the talent buyer would get a bonus, you know? So it was completely different. They weren't promoters at that point. They were just a corporation, of, uh, and it was just people who worked for that corporation who, um, you know, it was their job to find what the next up-and-coming thing was. Because they didn't have any connections with dubstep agents or artists, I was their connection. So they started coming to me. And that's when I sure. was able to, yeah. And basically, this is how it works all over the U.S., right? Like oh, yeah. the vast majority of, of venues are run like that. Yep, exactly. And so there's... And because, you know, with the black box, we're considered an independent venue because we're not owned by anybody else. We own it ourselves. Right. So there, you're either independent or corporate. There is no in between in America. Um, right. And for the most part, for electronic music, everything is everything is corporate because that's what ended up happening. And that's how it blew up so much because AEG and Live Nation are in every city. They're not just in Colorado. So what happens is, is that they started building relationships with agents to take artists away from promoters. They build relationships with an agent and they're like, well, we'll now tour excision in 15 different cities through all of our AEG venues. You don't need any other promoters. You just need us, you know? And so then it becomes from paying excision or paying these DJs a fee to them now getting a door split. So they'll get 90% of the ticket sales, you know? And so there's no need for a promoter, you know what I mean? Because they just kind of, you know. Yeah, everything everything runs in house essentially. Exactly, I mean, crazy, isn't it? And I've heard of deals where the artist gets like 110 percent of door on occasion. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, um, let's not get too lost in in this corporate uh, <laughs> corporate world. So, um, I wanted to ask. We've we've talked about um, that's it, and it's Scission and a few others. But there's a kind of elephant in the room there in terms of like prominent uh, American dubstep artists. And um, obviously that's Skrillex. I first came across him, I, was, I played at Movement in 2011. I'm pretty sure it was 2011. And I'd never heard of this Skrillex kid who was headlining the Rebel stage that I was playing on. And I'd I'd heard you know I'd, I'd heard that second decision stuff and I'd seen the videos of their shows and the stuff and I was sort of aware that this stuff was going on, 
but but witnessing uh, that Squid, that Skrillex show, uh, it was it was um, it was an eye-opening experience. Put it that way. So, how much of a big deal was he when he first hit in back then? Yeah. So Skrillex, I would say, made his debut probably in two thousand and ten, and at first, I think everybody was just like who is this guy? You know what I mean? Like, where did he come from? Because he just came out of left field, right? Like, uh, there was really, there wasn't, he didn't exist prior, you know, no one had really heard about him. Um, mm. and so it's, it's interesting. The more I, you know, the more I hear, I mean, I remember the first time Scrooge played in Denver, we all went cause we were like, I guess we should go and see what this is about. You know, to us, it was just like, he was a manufactured superstar. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, who is this guy? We didn't know much about him. We're the people that know about dubstep. Where did this guy come from? You know what I mean? So, so I'm guessing he played a corporate venue. Yes, exactly. And, uh, well, he actually played beta the first time, which at that time we had already left and he was, it was a very mainstream, uh, it had become a very mainstream type type thing. And that's, that's the thing. It was a very mainstream thing. He wasn't even Skrillex never, you know, at that, by that point, everybody had gone through the promoters. They played for us. You know what I mean? So there wasn't anybody who existed that was having a career that didn't start by playing for all the dubstep promoters. You know, Skrillex just came into the fold with his team and played all these high class venues and festivals without even having a foundation. You know, he just got right into it. So there was like the big controversy with him because obviously the people, you know, who were kind of the founders and the, and the, and the foundation of the scene in America were like, well, this is crazy. You know what I mean? Like, forget about this guy. We can't support this. You know what I mean? Then there was, but the impact that he had had, because at that time, the timing was perfect because the excision and Datsuk had already paved the ground. They already started playing that aggressive stuff and there wasn't anyone in America doing that. So then insert Skrillex and he became that guy for America. You know, it's interesting about right. Skrillex too, because, you know, he goes, when he goes to Europe, he goes to all the proper OG dubstep parties and that's where he hangs out. And they're the people he talks to and are interested in, you know, he's even been hitting up some of my clients to play shows for them in like now, you know, so it's really interesting because I never even knew that, you know, until, until my UK friends started telling me that like, Oh, Skrillex was at this party or Oh, Skrillex was here. Or, oh, Skrillex hit me up, you know? Yeah. I mean, my understanding is that he had a record deal like prior to that 2010 kind of parachuting in to, to the, to the scene and um, like his initial, act that he was signed to do wasn't successful i'm fairly sure this is the story i heard but um so he was then like you know influenced by what was going on in the dubstep scene and started making this music and you know had this kind of like machine already at sort of at his disposal or at his management's disposal is does that tally up with with your understanding of, of, of yeah so he, so he was in a band called first to last or from first to Actually, last yeah. and he was a lead singer and it was a screamo band and I think that was like 2007, maybe it ended. And so, um, you know, he kind of, he kind of at that point started like exploring electronic music. And so from, you know, from that point, and then 2010 was the first time he kind of like came out and started playing at all those, you know, playing all those events and stuff. And then by right. 2012, he's winning Grammys, you know what I mean? So 
it, it just goes to show, I mean, he obviously had a lot of money behind him, you know? And so when you have a lot of money and a lot of team, you can make waves a whole lot faster, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I can completely understand why the people who has done the work would have felt, you know, a bit put out, more than a bit put out, frankly. But I don't want to. I don't want to seem. I don't want to. I don't want it to seem like we're totally trashing him. But because, as you say, like he is, you know, I think he's coming from well as good a place as he could be musically, and has you know put the time in to um, you know, connect. But yeah, but it's obviously nice having a big having major label budgets. Getting you know, getting you to places that you know other people aren't, aren't able to. And and he was just the first one who did it without the rest of us. You know what I mean? Like it was just like whoa! All of a sudden, yeah, this guy pops then, up, right? and it's like, where did he even come from? You know what I mean? So it was like, yeah. So it was just you know, it was the first time you really you know, even though I had been you know at that point you know, starting conversations with corporations and stuff and realizing that there's this whole other side of the music industry that that's the music industry, you know, like what I do, the black box and submission, that's, I I consider that the music scene, you know, the industry is this entirely different animal and it's where all the money is. You know what I mean? It's like, because it's not their personal money. It's not, they don't have to worry about working for a month to save off enough money to pay for this next dubstep DJ you're bringing out. You know, that's just a corporate budget that they're like, cool, we'll pay that. And if they lose money, it's not their money. They're not getting, they're not hurting. You know, they're still eating dinner and buying new sneakers every week, you know, so (laughs) it's not affecting them. And so, um, that's like Skrillex was the first one that kind of came out that people were like, wow, okay, this is different. You know, this is not, uh, this is not what we are we are used to at this point, you know. Okay, so let's let's just return to that subgenre question because clearly after two thousand and ten, everything did kind of like go haywire, and there were all sorts of things going on musically, and you know, which in a, in a way that was must have been completely obvious to the audience and you know to to you guys as well. Clearly, so like to what extent did that kind of aggressive bro steppy type sounds? like take over because i mean obviously as as promoters you've got a you've got to put on parties that are going to sell but you've got to stay true to yourself well i mean one hopes that promoters are going to stay true to themselves musically i mean i i know for, i know you are certainly of that mindset so like how did you how did you cope <laughs> with that yeah happening? well by 2011 i realized that my job was now to bring music to to the people so i quit teaching And I went into this full time and my outlook was I'm going to utilize every opportunity that I have to push the sounds that I love. But I now have a job pushing other sounds of dubstep that maybe aren't my favorite. But while I'm going to do that, I am going to make sure that all the support and all the people are the music that I love. So that way we're still exposing everybody to the sounds and able to continue to build our underground movement while while this bro step extravaganza is going on, you know? And so basically at that point I was hired as the talent buyer for AEG and I was booking a lot of their their events, which were all the bro step stuff. At the same time, I was still doing Electronic Tuesdays and doing a monthly submission event that were still underground. Um, and so I, I was kind of just doing a little bit of everything. 
while there, you know, it wasn't really until 2011 that I think more, you know, maybe 2012 that the rhythm stuff really started, you know? So in the beginning, you know, for those first two years of explosion, I was able to separate, you know, where the more aggressive sound was versus where the OG proper dubstep was, you know, and we were able to like throw these events at these corporate venues flyer for our other events and really, really give people the, the both sides of the coin, you know, and really be able to expose them to everything. So that's kind of, that was kind of like my mission, you know, was to make sure that even though this stuff is what's picking up, that I was able to um, really make sure that I was still incorporating the music that we love to be able to continue throwing events. And, and it became very clear to people because we had our followers who would come to every submission show. Then we had our people who would just come for the, the darker, you know, the more OG shows, which I held in a lot of warehouses at that point and Cervantes still. Um, and then there was the people who were just in it for, you know, the more bro step type sound, you know, and, and at those events, that's where we would kind of target the people who we would see dancing to the music, you know, of the openers, and we would go up to them and give them flyers for events that we were doing, you know, with proper, you know, with, with the sounds that we love, I should say, you know. So um, this rhythm subgenre, which I have to say I'd never heard of before this conversation, um, <laughs> did, that, did that kind of blurred the like the two things together i'm i'm guessing from what you've just said it, it kind of yeah kind, it kind of did you know rhythm was like um I, I think i think in my opinion what ended up happening at least from america was that once bro step became this animal you know this beast of a thing it felt like there was a time period when a lot of the uk producers were just like kind of slowing down you know whether they were just discouraged by what was happening or maybe Things in the UK were a bit different. Who knows? That's when a lot of these younger kids, like the Gentleman's Club, 50 Carat, Solomon, Coffee, um, you know, and Jake's with Hench and Lost and all of those guys were kind of, you know, the forefathers of like the sound, the Hench sound is what rhythm is, basically, if that makes sense, right. if you're familiar right. with that, right? Maybe, maybe yeah. more Europeans would be familiar with that. So these kids heard that sound and took advantage and knew that bro step was like popping off and made this like harder, more aggressive hench style. And that is what became rhythm. And those were young kids coming out. I would say, you know, probably by the end of 2011 and 12, it is a huge thing. I mean, at this point in America, bro step, you don't promoters don't book that that's all corporations, right? So there's right. not really many independent people left that have access to book those artists. Those artists are playing, doing events themselves, working with corporations and doing their own thing. They're just, it's like a concert, you know, it's, it's what, what, which artists are you the excisions to? and the flux pavilions and the funk cases and the, you know, those, those, those types of artists, you know, they're all doing their own yes. thing, working with corporations and um, not working with promoters. Rhythm is what, uh, you know, the rhythm sounds, there are independent promoters who are promoting that, you know? So this point in America, the independents are, you know, either pushing proper dubstep, you know, like the OG, OG style, or they're doing rhythm. And a rhythm is like for the younger kids, you know, the kids who sure. aren't really into 
going to the corporate venues and the more mainstream concerts, you know, that there's, you know, so it's kind of like the middle ground of both of those, if that makes sense. So, well, here's a question. So roughly how many tickets does Excision sell these days, like in Denver? (sighs) Sells out 25, 30,000 place arenas. (laughs) Wow, are you serious? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking, we're talking like arenas, you know, where there's basketball games and like, you know, our professional athletes play and stuff, you know? I mean, that says a lot about him and his fan base, but like, like how much does that say about like how popular that sound is? It's almost like some of those artists have just sort of transcended the genre and kind of just become big things in of themselves. Yes. I mean, they're brands now, you know, they're not, they're not artists anymore. That's a brand. And those types of events at those types of things, people just buy tickets to go to them. They don't even know the music, you know, it's like, Oh, well, my entire high school is going to see excision. So we're going to go too, you know? So it's like, it, it is just a part of American, you know, just like people just, they, they're looking for something to do on the weekend and that's what's happening, you know? So they go there. So, but it is, you know, he, he's done a great job of building his brand and, uh, you know, that's, that's where they're at. That's at this point. Okay. So let me ask you just going back then to that sort of like the period in which it really was really kicking off like at that stage the, the kind of post dubstep you know early james blake and hessel audio and all of that kind of stuff was becoming popular in in the uk um in fact it was massive in the uk at that point sort of 2011 12 13 we were doing our substance party at the burkine around then which was a kind of techno slash dubstep crossover thing. And I remember trying to book that, um, trying to get a tour for that booked in the States. And it just, people were just not interested at all. <laughs> like a kind of techno crossover. No, thanks. But like, I mean, the, um, you know, the, 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 the less ambiguous stuff. So I'm thinking, you know, like, I guess Apple Blim and like, and, you know, Pearson Sound and all that stuff. Like to what extent was that a thing? Was it just a small niche of it? Was it making an impact at all? Yeah, it did. A hundred percent. I mean, I booked a lot of that, a lot of that sound for my Electronic Tuesdays. Um, and the, the thing for me was I put that sound there specifically because Electronic Tuesdays at that point just had a following. Every Tuesday, 500 people came out, you know? So it was a great opportunity for me to put artists and music that I really liked there that may not be as be received as well. Right. Because like I said, you know, a lot of that, you know, that, that didn't really exist in America. You know what I mean? I mean, now, now it does. I mean, there are promoters who are pushing, pushing that sound, you know what I mean? And and bringing out some of those, some, some of the artists, you know, but it is definitely older, you know what I mean? Like the older crowd, like people that are more like our age and like maybe 35 and older, you know? Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it did exist and it definitely, you know, wasn't terrible. Those nights still popped off. People still were able to see it. However, I can't speak for outside of Denver. I don't think that there was a huge, you know what I mean? I, I don't really know what was going on in other cities. You know, for me, it was great because I loved that music. And I was able to put it in front of an audience, you know, and, and at least give some some exposure to to what it was and to to where that was coming from, you know. So it worked here in Denver, um, but it, it never, you know, it, it never really blew up to the point until some promoters were able to kind of like do warehouse parties for older people. It seems to translate a little bit better in those more warehouse all night types of environment than a club play, you know. 
yeah, I mean, it was never going to reach that kind of um, <laughs> reach the ProStep level. I mean, uh, ProStep, I think, uh, in many ways, it's just, it's, it couldn't be better designed for the oh, yeah. American music market. It's just like, it's everything there. It's just a kind of like update of, of metal, yeah. thrash, yeah. thrash metal. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, okay, last question. So you've been in a few uh, women of EDM lists, I believe, and you've definitely made a point in previous interviews of like emphasizing like the role of women in Denver, I think. I mean, you mentioned actually at the top that one of the other key promoters is also a woman. So um, obviously there's been all this, like all these efforts to like increase participation of DJs and, you know, you know, parity on lineups and all that kind of stuff. But I think like there's just a big gap, probably even a bigger gap actually in the kind of back end of the music industry. I mean, certainly as someone who's spent many years touring, like just in, you know, promoters and also people at working clubs is so male dominated. So like just at a general level, since you've been involved in music, how has that kind of changed over time? And it has the whole, you know, the, the attempts to make a difference on the performance side, how much has that kind of like filtered through to what you do in the industry? Yeah, so it's it's always interesting for me to talk about this because I think I mean my viewpoint is 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 my own, you know, and through my own experience. And when when everything first started and my experience in the music industry, you're right, there wasn't very many females at all. I mean, honestly, I it was a very male dominated patron crowd too. There wasn't many females who even came to the parties, you know? And I also, in the beginning, it was it was submission, it wasn't really me, you know. So like I didn't really people didn't know it was led by a woman. And once, you know, and, and, and so it, it wasn't a thing, you know, like I, I don't, I don't feel until, you know, society got involved and all these things were happening that really this push for including women became so, so important. And mostly it was just because it was just pretty accepted that there really wasn't many involved, you know, there really wasn't many DJs or producers out there, you know, and it was just like a thing. That's just how it is. And I think at that point, because of that, it led to a lot of women feeling like nervous and maybe like like they didn't want to come out and be dubstep or bass music or a producer or a promoter just because there wasn't others. And so, um, you know, at that when I realized that, that maybe was the case, we started providing opportunities and like started to um, kind of really showcase the fact that that submission was led by a woman and. Uh, that's when a lot of those articles had started coming out. And so I just had kind of like embraced, embraced that and kind of helped push that. I do think it's important from talking to other, to other females. We do a night in Denver called women crush Wednesday, and it is focused on just femme lineups. And from talking to some of them just, you know, about their experience, that's, it's a lot of what they said. They felt like, you know, by the time they got involved, bro step and Brito, it was just so aggressive and that it was so male dominated that they I mean, just the fact that it's called bro step. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that it was just so male dominated that they just felt like, you know, it, it, it was just scary, you know, it was scary for them to kind of come forward. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, since then, People are really cognizant of that. I see these days a lot of people putting inclusion policies in their riders that say basically, you know, we need a person of color or a female, you know, just somebody else on the lineup besides besides men. Let me let me just ask you about that in particular. Um, as a booker, how does that, I mean, like completely on board with the sentiment and all the rest of it, but I've heard from various promoters that that can be 
can be sort of problematic from a just from a sort of logistic standpoint of putting lineups together. Like if you've got to have a you know a hard kind of like quota to fill. Like how do you see that as a promoter? I mean, you know, while I do agree with the sentiment myself, and you know, seeing diverse lineups is great. I think as a promoter, you have a vision for the show that you're putting together, and it should be about what makes sense. It shouldn't be about what sex they are or what race they are, you know, it's, it's made it very difficult, you know, sometimes because it's like, okay, now I have to find a female, but none of these females play this type of, you know, and I'm all for eclectic lineups. Don't get me wrong. But if it does just to put somebody on a lineup that doesn't make sense goes against what our job is as a promoter. Right. I mean, we're, we're, we're building a party, right? So we're building, you know, focus. So it, it is what it is. I mean, at this point, I'm lucky in Denver. We have a very long list of females who are who are DJs and who are producers right now. So it is pretty it is pretty easy at this point for me to kind of find someone or a person of color or whatever, you know. So we're very diverse here, which is great and very inclusive already, which which I think is uh, is important. But I could see that being a problem for people in general across countries and cities where maybe it's just starting and there aren't very many females, you know? And, uh, Mm. I don't know. I mean, it's just becoming a thing, right? It's like cancel culture happened, you know, over the past few years, people had a lot of free time on their hands during COVID. So they, they created issues out of things that, uh, weren't issues, you know, and they also, you you know what I mean? Like, and and so it, it, it's just, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm all for inclusive lineups. I don't think I need to be told what I, what I need to do or what I don't need to do. You know, I think that uh, it should be about the flow of the music and the journey of the night that creates the experience. And if that's a male, if that's a female, if that's a person of color, an Asian, you know, whatever, like more power, more, I've just always been a person that doesn't necessarily look at, I, I don't judge a person by, who they are, what race they are, what, you know what I mean? Like what ethnicity I've, I always look at people the same myself. Like I, I look at everybody on the same level, no matter what. So it's been a a huge shift for me just even in my thinking. And it's weird because I am a female, but I've not dealt with a lot of those issues because I've been around for so long. And mostly because I don't take any shit, you know, I don't deal with a lot of issues (laughs) that, that a lot of other females may, may, in the music industry, but as a female, I stand beside them, you know, and I will do whatever I can to help support and make them feel comfortable in an industry that is dominated by men, you know? And so it's just kind of a, a kind of a thing that we deal with these days, you know? Right. Okay. Um, this has been great. Thanks so much for doing it. Yeah, totally. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was Nicole Cacciavillano and I really, really enjoyed having that conversation. So, so interesting to get her take on the development of of dubstep from really early on, like even from uh, a British perspective really early on, how it kind of took root in the US and um, the different people that got involved in their different ways. And um yeah, it's exactly the kind of stuff that I want on this podcast. <laughs> My target content, absolutely on the money. Anyway, yeah, that was, um, as I said, that was good. So not too much else to say this week. We've got something coming on Friday on Who Whom, 
which I'm going to leave the announcement for till then. So just check us out on Bandcamp on Friday, hotflush.bandcamp.com. Plenty of uh, recent releases as well to cover there. Um, thanks to everyone supporting the Anna Cost release. She's got a whole bunch of new material coming up too, so hold tight on that. But yeah, that um, EP of hers, to people liking that one, so check it out if you haven't done it already. was in the uh, the Spotify playlist for this show, actually on last week's edition, my uh, moaning about <laughs> clearing dance laws edition of the show. Um, won't be too many more of them, I doubt. But yeah, hotflush.bandcamp.com. And um, leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. really does help the show. Join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash discords. There's a not a diving podcast channel in there. And like I said, follow that aforementioned Spotify playlist. I will be back here, same time, same place next week with the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. See them. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.